Hello, I'm Bruce Malcolm, and this is Denise Malcolm. We're proud to share with you this podcast series, Keeping Kids Safe, A Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Malcolm Foundation. Each episode will feature practical insights on how to teach your child safety in our world today. We will help parents and carers understand and navigate the challenging world of child sexual abuse. What child sexual abuse is, the behaviours and signs to be wary of, and how to respond if you are worried about this with children you know. Our host, Walkley Award-winning journalist Nance Haxon, will talk with survivors, parents, leading researchers and professionals working on the front line in this area to give you the tools and resources you need. It's time for difficult conversations on this hidden topic. This podcast talks openly about child abuse, child sexual abuse, child sexual exploitation and harmful sexual behaviours. We are aware the content raised in this podcast series may be triggering by some listeners. There are links in our show notes for organisations that can support you. Please feel free to take a breather when you need it. Today on Keeping Kids Safe, a Bright Futures podcast for the Daniel Morecambe Foundation, we're going to Hobart to the Daniel Morecambe Foundation's Bright Futures Forum on November 20, 2023, to hear the latest research from four experts in the field of harmful sexual behaviours in children. Firstly, we speak to Catherine Fordyce, whose leadership has been described as life-changing for neurodivergent children and their families. She tells us about the particular challenges that children with disabilities face around expressing their sexuality and what is key to addressing the unique needs of this group. We also hear from Professor Dale Tolliday, who is an internationally renowned researcher and practitioner and the Sydney Children's Hospital Network Senior Clinical Advisor for Children and Young People's Sexual Safety Program, or SIPS. Then we go to Professor Elspeth McInnes, a sociologist with research expertise in early childhood child development and trauma. She has worked for decades researching children and families, investigating what are the best trauma-informed approaches to professional learning for education and care workers dealing with these issues. And finally, we hear from Renee Pepper. Renee is a registered psychologist who is currently working in the Department of Education, Children and Young People in Tasmania, assisting schools in responding to sexual harm. She's worked for more than 15 years with children, young people, adults and families to provide early intervention and therapeutic services in response to harmful sexual behaviours. Catherine, can we start with you? Firstly, I'd like to congratulate you on being chosen as a nominee for 2024 Tasmanian of the Year. Thank you. Pretty awesome for someone doing the difficult, complex work that you do to be recognised. Yeah, it was um, a big shock and um, a really pleasant surprise. I don't know who nominated me, but I'm, I'm very thankful that the work that I've done over the years that somebody has appreciated it enough to take the time to make a nomination. So, but yeah, I think for me, the work that I've done over the career, like I'm a speech pathologist by trade and I guess going into that work has always been about giving voice to people. So I think all along my journey then working with autistic people, I've always really kind of been passionate about lived experience and making sure that the voices of people with lived experience are kind of showcased and... So moving 
from speech pathology into autism work and working with amazing autistic advocates and then moving into the sexual violence space and just having such admiration for people with lived experience victim survivors, particularly victim survivors who have an intersectional background where, you know, they've got multiple forms of marginalisation that they've experienced, that those people and their experience is really important. And I think this harmful sexual behaviour space is a space that we're probably not yet able to kind of tap into as much as we'd like to the lived experience of people who have had harmful sexual behaviours and I guess increasingly we're hearing more from victim survivors who have been harmed by other children and the complexity that that kind of brings out in their stories in terms of how they feel around, you know, was it really abuse? And of course it was abuse. It's the experience that you have as the person who has been the recipient of certain behaviours rather than the kind of intent of the person who may have been doing the harming. So I think, yeah, all along my journey, it's always about kind of what can you learn from people with lived and living experience. And yeah, I hope that I can keep doing that for a very long time. In your work with children with disabilities, what do you see as the prevalence of harmful sexual behaviours in neurodivergent and disabled children and young people? Yeah, I guess, I mean, part of the reason that I moved across from disability into sexual violence was that I was seeing so often the experience of some of the children and young people and adults that I was working with having experienced child sexual abuse and other forms of sexual violence. And, you know, we've had a whole Royal Commission on the basis of the fact that that is something that happens all too often for children and adults with disabilities. I guess I was also seeing that a lot of the children and young people that I was working with who were not being effectively included in comprehensive respect for relationships and sexuality education, so they were often not being included, they were being kind of subbed out of class when those things were happening in school or people were making assumptions about what kind of vocabulary did someone with a speech and language disorder or or complex communication needs, what did they need in their aided communication system. Oh, it was a girl, so she doesn't need the picture for penis on her aided communication system. Well, if some if somebody showed her their penis or did something inappropriate to her, how was that young girl ever going to be able to disclose that? And so I guess seeing those intersections of all the young people that we were working with, seeing that lots of the young autistic boys in particular that I was working with who were just besotted with technology and then the exposure to um, pornography and some of the other kind of chatting functions that are happening on gaming and just seeing kind of risk layered upon risk layered upon risk to to young people who may not have always felt included in the real world and the risks I guess associated with then what being online looked like for those people and and how for those young people and how are we effectively providing them with the supports that they needed in terms of our comprehensive respect for relationships and sexuality education to set them up to be successful so that they aren't being harmed, but also so that they're not harming others. And we're seeing that obviously from the stats in the past program that our team are delivering in the North and the Northwest, where we're seeing, you know, many of the children, and Elizabeth's data showed that, that many of the children that we're supporting um, are autistic or neurodivergent in some other way. And, And yeah, how do we make sure that we're getting that preventative stuff right for that cohort of students, but also making sure that when we are doing therapeutic support, that we're doing it in a neurodiversity affirming way, because we've come a long way in terms of not looking at autistic people as being that their social skills are, they're not in deficit, they're just different. 
And so how do we, when we're talking about harmful sexual behaviours and sexual violence, how do we make sure that that neurodiversity affirming framework sits aligned with a trauma-informed framework and with all of the work that we're doing, but we're, we're perceiving those, children, those autistic children as their way of living and functioning in the world is different, not disordered, is super important to me. And I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> well, I just wonder how your programs are responding to that. I mean, the, the, the prevention aspect, but also treatment. I mean, it's, it's a multi-layered I, I, I think that, um, I think probably Elizabeth explained it really well this morning is I think that we've still got a way to go in terms of, you know, where the past program is relatively new. We've got the Laurel House team have only been involved for the last 12 months. We've been working with harmful sexual behaviours for much longer than that, obviously, in, in younger children and not in part of that program. But I think that the world's changing. The neurodiversity affirming frameworks have been being kind of informed by autistic advocates who are kind of, you know, challenging us to think differently. And I think that that, as well as, you know, when we're thinking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander ways of knowing and being and and how we're working with other diverse communities, I think there's there's always room for us to be having these kinds of conversations. And certainly from my perspective, having run a service that delivered NDIS-funded services, I think that we're not working... We're not working well between the sexual violence sector and the disability NDIS sector and then all the other bits that fit in between with the education department around who's doing what and who's responsible for what. And I think that there's there's still a lot of room for us to grow with all very good intentions but to really build up and strengthen so that, you know, nobody's caught, you know, unsupported, I suppose. Dale, it sounds like there's a lot of crossover there with with your work there at New Street. Could you perhaps tell us about that? Because you've also seen a rise in that harmful sexual behaviour really presenting to you from that neurodiverse group as well, haven't you? The services we've got are for kids 10 to 17, so pretty close to the same age range, who have a confirmed um, harmful sexual behaviour. And... We want to have an open door, no wrong door approach, integrated with other health services, etc. And we've had a deliberate uplift um, for both disability and working in culturally safe ways. The result, in terms of the Aboriginal clients that we've got, we've gone from 6% participation to 40% across the state. Varies between the high 20s and low 70s, depending on which location at which time. Assessed or diagnosed disabilities is around 40%. Uh, percent and um, uh, interestingly, ASD is at the front of the pack. So we're needing to actually address how we respond and tailor what we're doing. The particularly autistic kids that perceive and experience the world differently, um, as do their parents who might also be autistic. And it's this will sound odd, but it's quite fun work with autistic kids, I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in terms of our priority populations, we, uh, we also have between 40 and 50% of our kids in formal out-of-home care. Um, so it's big state, big population, and maybe a different landscape to here, but we've got these vul- multiple vulnerabilities. In our earlier policy in setting up services, because we've tried to do a patchwork across the state, and we think we're almost there in terms of having services for every geographical location. We were talking before about how there was that 
dilemma really that, yes, you're an expert in this space, you've been working in this space for 30 years, but you don't have the expertise in autism or with some of those neurodiversities that you've been dealing with. How do you think we can make those bridges really that Catherine was talking about as well? Is it training or what's the key here? In our earlier um, policy iteration, we actually had the terrible statement in it that said that our services were for young people who had the ability to communicate with us when in fact it should be the opposite. The thought behind that was that we thought, well, where's the, where's the line or the point where we become the primary provider for somebody who has disability? And in the early days when we started providing our specialist services, as soon as we were on the, on the landscape, if there was a sexual behaviour, no matter what the other complex needs of the young person was, it was a referral to us and a sort of people sort of going, yippee, it's another place to go. Uh, it really needs to be a partnership of services and the issue with disabilities is there are disability specialist providers. We've now attracted some individuals with those skills into our into our workforces but our view is that it's the disability service providers we want to partner with so that there can be a, a better embedded uh, structure of services for kids with whatever their disability is to help them with their development and in particular their sexual development, sexual behaviours. Our approach to harmful sexual behaviours is not from the extreme end, it's from the end of what's expected development, not what is is unusual or harmful. You know, we if you go to the top end, you'll be overreacting and over and not using the resources really terribly well overall. And um, the language around this is all shifting too. So it's one of the, the notions that's got normal development. <coughs> well, what's normal for a 12-year-old boy who's autistic or a 12-year-old boy with uh, intellectual or learning disability or, a, or an average ability boy or a boy from the high-end private school education and with um, you know, high achievement expectations, etc. So for us, we look at what is expected development, what's the development that we'd expect for a child of this ability in this context as being at that end of the spectrum. And at the top end, we've simply got harmful behaviour, which is not measured by intent. It's an umbrella. It includes sexual abuse, sexual assault, but it's broader than that because it's impact. It's It's what the experience was for the person who was harmed. And sitting in the middle is problematic. There's some discussion happening in different places at the moment to swap out problematic for concerning. I shrugged my shoulders when I first heard that. I thought, what's the difference, etc.? Do I need to really get involved? And I don't really mind, but the thing about concerning is it's concerning for the adults, but if it's problematic, it's problematic for the child. And I think it's more child-focused. I think there's a fear of using the word problematic that people will, might regard the child as a problem. I haven't actually seen that. The biggest problem in harmful sexual behaviours is children being labelled as the behaviour itself and, and people lose sight of who the, who the young person is. So given these decades of experience, Dale, can you give us a bit of an insight into what, what do you think makes an effective response from these service systems to harmful sexual behaviour? What, what is the key there or, or what makes a poor response? What's the differences here? Um, look, the easy, the easy answer is to say it's got to be a measured response that, that doesn't miss, that doesn't overestimate what's being recognised and seen. I think people need to recognise this. There is a view, you might have heard this in the... I was out of the room when the presentation was happening from the National Office, but there's a view that Australian society and adults aren't ready to hear about children and sexual behaviour. I'm not so sure about that, but if they're not ready, we need to help them. 
uh, with it, there's a whole range of expected development that's noticed. Like, if we go back into the very young children, in any household, there are kids finding their own bodies, being interested in the bodies of other people, and et cetera, et cetera. You don't ignore that, but you don't pathologise it either. You just respond to it and don't get freaked out. Well, as children move developmentally, the behaviours can be more on track or they can actually go a bit sideways at times that needs a different kind of response in terms of a systemic response to harmful sexual behaviour. So this is a behaviour that where there is, it's been identified that somebody's been hurt by the behaviour or that it's a behaviour that's clearly placing the child who's displaying it at, at risk of harm as well. So we've got child sexual exploitation as being a possible sort of outcome of that. There needs to be a clarity in any place. I think when I say place, I think Tasmania is a jurisdiction. What's the definition and what's the commitment the government makes to lead the whole of the multiple agencies in the sector to have a shared definition, understanding about childhood, sexual behaviour and harmful sexual behaviour? And then to define then what are the layers of response? Because it should be the least intrusive response matched to the child. So it might be a school identified behaviour and managing at school might be exactly what it needs. It might be school plus parent. It might need a child protection report, but still the school have got it. And in my state, I've spoken to principals saying, we've made the report, nothing's happened yet, we've still got the, the child at the school. So this, the education system, which is the place where kids, except for being in their own beds, spend most of their waking hours, their, their living hours, uh, have got that, that enormous responsibility of, a, of providing a safe environment for everybody at school. So um, I think the easiest quick answer, Nance, is to say, it's a whole of system response. That's in my state, that's what we've worked on for the last several years and we've produced a framework now, Children First, which is on the internet and available if people haven't seen it, where the New South Wales government's adopted a public health approach which says that this is everybody's business and now we're working through the layers of what that then means for health, education, police, child protection, youth justice, Attorney-General's department. And, and, and through to NGO and service providers. Top down yeah. and back up again. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it does cross into a lot of taboo topics, I suppose, Catherine, really, in that we're, we're also recognising people with disability as having a sexual life and how we have those conversations. Absolutely. I think, um, I don't, if, if people haven't read our Watchers Changing the Landscape framework, which is their framework on violence against women with disabilities and it does a really excellent job of capturing kind of the ableist drivers of violence against women with disabilities and I think even though it was written for that context I think it's helpful when we think about harmful sexual behaviours and children with disabilities there's kind of a real sense of ableism that exists in terms of you know either infantilising people with disabilities and assuming that they're non-sexual beings through to kind of this alternative of that they're hypersexual and that they need to be chemically castrated or 
forced, where there's um, reproductive coercion and other things in place that, you know, prevent people with, from disabilities engaging in sexual behaviour. And so I think that there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done in terms of challenging some of those misconceptions about people with disabilities broadly and that those misconceptions exist in the world and so they therefore exist in service providers as well regardless of where they are and and really kind of challenging people to think about people with disabilities in a way where we're engaging directly with people with disabilities and hearing from them what they want and need from services and understanding that all people, regardless of disability, are sexual beings. They've all got sexual development. And the importance of recognising chronological age, not necessarily always just assuming that somebody that has a disability, you know, there's this kind of tendency to pathologise and assume that they've got this developmental age and then forget that, you know, if you're a 17-year-old autistic man, you're a 17-year-old autistic man with an intellectual disability who has got the hormones and potentially the desires of any other 17-year-old and that we need to ensure that we're having our services and supports reflect that as well. So what is really key to addressing the unique needs of this group? We've spoken a bit about training. We need to get that training out to different service providers, but what else is needed? I think that it is, it's that joining up of disability experts and experts in sexual violence and in and experts in kind of comprehensive respectful relationships and sexuality education, you know, all of those people together and importantly, people with lived experience kind of talking about their experiences, that whole joined up approach where we're actually being open enough to talk about. And I think that if there's people worried about talking about sex and typical sexual development in the neurotypical population, certainly people get even more uncomfortable when we start talking about people with disabilities and so we're kind of layering all of those intersecting biases that make it even more difficult to talk about it and I guess even more reason that we need to be talking about it and we need to be having people with lived experience talk about what have they missed out on by not being included in education programs what are we specifically targeting them to find out what's working and what isn't working for them around service provision is do people feel safe to disclose their disability when they're accessing services? So just all of those kinds of things that really challenge that narrative around exclusion. Ellsworth, I'm interested to hear your experience too, particularly from your research perspective and your decades as a sociologist, but what do you think really is, is needed here? Because that came up very clearly in uh, your recent research as well, didn't it? Yeah, thank you, um, Nance. I was musing about... Back in the day, she said, revealing, you know, it was a while ago, but magazines like Dolly did an awful lot of work with young people and parents in just the words of our bits and bobs, what to expect, how things work out in terms of sexual behaviours. And it was aimed at... The Dolly magazine was aimed at young girls. I know young boys read it as well and parents read it. And the demise of that sort of grey, accessible, popular literature, I think, has left a gap. Pornography has been conscripted to fill that gap uh, in many ways and by many young people. But, of course, there's not the critical awareness of the processes of production of pornography, the drivers of what's portrayed, 
as opposed to actual lived experience, IRL, in real life, <laughs> as it were. So I think there's a big gap in access to for young people and for parents in easily accessible guides to sexual development and behaviours and direction to sources of help if they have concerns. So I think that's a huge gap. And one of the things that I read, you know, in literature that comes across my desk was that 40% of young people allegedly engage in strangulation during sex. So, and, and that we're not talking about that under the umbrella of harmful sexual behaviours, it's become integrated into, is this what I should do? I should strangle my girlfriend during sex. Oldies like me aren't particularly aware of this walking about in the street, but the people who are seeing the injuries and the young people are certainly nodding their heads and saying, yeah, this is going on where pornography has become one of the key sources of information about sexual behaviour. So I, I think I'd love to see something where I, you don't have to have a, a harm context to just get information about what I can expect from my body, what are the names of the bits, what are relationships, what is consent. And I think the, the consent education push is very positive because it is... It's emerged as certainly needed, but it's it's the, one of the key locations of that social discourse, talking about what relationships might be and what, what young people might expect and engage in. So that's encouraging. But, you know, we do have the internet and social media and we're not using it as much as we could to get that, those kinds of more positive resources out there and I'd love to see that that kind of resource not only for the typically developing but also populations with disabilities. And, uh, I mean, we barely come to services for adults with disabilities to access sexual experiences. So we are quite repressed, I think, as a society. And it, it would be certainly very helpful to develop those resources to fill the vacuum that young people are filling with some really harmful and destructive content. That said, I don't think we can lump it into schools because the curriculum is super crowded and one of the difficulties, as you say, Dale, is children spend a lot of time in schools but educators aren't necessarily trauma-informed they're still very much stuck in the old power hierarchies where they're the boss and children do as they're told. Children and young people are expected to be compliant. And we, we, I would love to see a model where we could tap into, educators could tap into expertise as needed, when it's needed and know where to go and that children and young people I would love to see a greater address to peers engaging in peer education. Who knows how to talk to a 14-year-old's top of the pops? Another 14-year-old. 
So if we were in schools, using schools to recruit peer education into the wellbeing and consent conversations and sexual development conversations, we would be uh, supporting educators not to have to do it all on their own and, and parents as well. We would be developing leadership amongst those peers who were delivering that peer education and obviously, you know, it wouldn't be one peer does it, does it all, it would be spread around year to year so that over, over time a peer education process in consent, in positive relationships, in sexual development and sexual behaviours could stimulate really positive conversations, education and learning and of course also develop leadership for young people to influence and learn about how to influence their peers. <clears throat> so I, I think there's a lot of work that could usefully be done um, and I, I've seen the peer education model work astonishingly well in primary schools and it would also apply very well obviously in high school or secondary schools. Um, so I, I guess I'm arguing for much more resource provision, development and provision to provide positive information and education. As you said, Dale, having, having consistent frameworks, definitions, layers of response is an, also a great advantage and that was something that the Commission of Inquiry called for here in Tasmania. I think we're on the road to that. Certainly the past program is doing a wonderful job but the, it hasn't got the resources to do it all and you can't have it working in isolation. <coughs> uh, you know, I'd love to see the join-ups between the NDIS and such services whereby it was really usual and normal to have partnerships and collaborations and also talking about that mandated context in youth justice you know, you can't mandate that, well, you'll wear an ankle bracelet. Oh, geez, we haven't got enough. Bugger. <laughs> you know, you've got to have whatever you're mandating, you've got to have it there. And so I think we tend, politicians tend to leave children and children's issues as a subordinate issue because children don't vote and they're perhaps seen as less important, I don't know. But that needs to be elevated into the first rank of this This is our future society to invest in. And um, even though they might not be today's voters, the future of the society really depends on how well we, as this generation, do our work for tomorrow. Renee, this crosses over into your work a bit. I think you've got that unique experience as a registered psychologist, but working now in the Department of Education, Children and Young People, assisting schools in this tricky area, responding to sexual harm. What have you found to be some of the, the key aspects in your work there? When I worked at SAS as a, a, a clinician there working in sexual harm, I had no idea of how many disclosures and incidents happen within school settings. Like, even though, you know, research will show us that that happens and... You really don't understand that until you, you work in the schools and the, and the school settings to really understand that kids, for a lot of kids, school is much safer place than home. 
kids build really good relationships with school staff or professional support staff like social workers and psychs and it becomes a safer space to talk about these things. And so I think for me it was, it was actually eye-opening to come into education and understand how much many times, you know, teachers, school staff, PSS have to actually respond to these disclosures or view and observe incidents of, of harmful sexual behaviours and then need to respond to those things. So I think I feel really privileged in many ways to have a clinical background, to have come from working in a very specialist area and, and having done, you know, really long-term therapeutic work with, with some of these kids to then come into the education department and, and hopefully utilise my skills in that space and even though I'm a registered psych, I often see myself as an educator as well and educating others on how to respond and how to support these kids and really view things from the best interests of the child and, and look at things from their perspective and view things in a trauma-informed way. So I actually feel very privileged to have, have been able to work across both those spaces. It's really informed your current work by the sound of it. I mean, is it beneficial now with that experience being able to work directly in schools with, with victims and perpetrators and being able to apply that knowledge? Yeah, yeah. I'll pull you up on calling the perpetrators, but we'll talk about that later. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so That's important. Language yeah, is important. Yeah, Please language do. is important. Um, look, uh, there are many people um, working within the schools who have a lot of knowledge in this space. We've got a lot of social workers and psychs who already have a lot of skills and knowledge in the area of harmful sexual behaviours. T, who is, as she says, not a clinician, but very well-versed in this space and very considered in all her responses to, to schools. So this, the education department has a lot of um, resources in that, that way already, already there. But So I feel like I'm just adding to that, hopefully. But um, I, I think it is really... I do feel, as I said, very privileged to come in and actually help guide some of that, give some feedback from a clinical point of view um, as a person who's worked in a clinical space and done sort of more long-term therapeutic work with kids, um, you know, who's set up a, a clinical and education program with, within a specialist service and, and just bring some different perceptions and, and um, skills, I guess, into that and add to what's already existing in that space, Yeah. And what's a better word for perpetrator for us journos trying to report in this space? <laughs> so um, I guess we would usually refer to them as children engaging in harmful sexual behaviour or something like that. And then obviously kids that are impacted by that behaviour is, is sort of some terminology that we'd use. We, we don't want to be mapping adult behaviours onto children. They are children. They're, you know, not fully developed. And especially if then you've got children, neurodiverse children, we don't want to be creating labels and as we've talked before earlier on, we've talked about that the majority of these kids that are engaging in harmful sexual behaviour will not go on to become adult perpetrators, as we call them. And so we don't want to label them really young to, to, through an adult lens. We really want to stay away from that. A lot of these behaviours, early intervention, we can sort of sort those things out. So we don't want to label, we don't want to put that adult lens onto them. And yeah. I think it's a good time to throw two questions from our... Learned audience as well. I'm sure you've uh, got some questions specific to the expertise of this incredible panel with decades of experience before you. I just wonder from the panel, we have children, young people who come and 
Their presentation is really complex. Um, on any given day, sometimes it's um, homelessness, it might be drug and alcohol, uh, it might be um, domestic um, you know, abuse from a parent or from other people in the, in the home, impact to poor mental health, all sorts of things. And when you're working with a young person, that can change pretty quickly. So how, how do you set up supports for children and young people that is flexible enough. Sometimes where we get stuck is we, you know, we have a care team and we and bring the care team back together and we talk about the new referral and we put a referral in because this is about homelessness. So the referral has to go into the place where the homeless... And then, you know, by that stage, actually, you know, now we're back to the drug and alcohol and... But the drug and alcohol people sometimes, you know, they drop the referral because somebody else has picked up a referral. How, how do you manage that? What is your recommendation to be able to proof against this dipping in and out. And I understand we can't have lots and lots of agents. We, do, we don't have lots and lots of agencies to be around every single child. But what would your recommendation be in those sorts of cases? I think, and you clearly all heard me talk about my expertise has kind of come out of the disability sector. And I think in some ways we've been kind of lucky, particularly for young people that have a support coordinator, so people that are in the NDIS, and that that person sometimes can take on almost a bit of a coordination function. And so I guess where where I've seen it work best is where, like, there is somebody that's kind of worded up as the lead kind of conduit, and whether that's the school social worker or whether that's the Laurel House worker or whether it's a child safety worker or whether it's an NDIS support coordinator, that that person is kind of empowered and has the authorising environment outside of the care team meetings to kind of go, well, this thing needs to happen and I'm not going to wait until I've got everybody in agreement. This, there's an urgent need and I'm going, I'm going to act. And I guess in some, like in some settings we see that as like it might be the lead teacher in a, like a year-level coordinator that does it. Or like, but in whichever, in whichever situation, it's that somebody has been named as that person that can kind of identify, fill a gap, suss things out and then come back to the group and say, I had to I had to act because there was this urgent need and this is the things I've done and this is what I've put in place. Um, but where it falls down, and I think the examples that I've got, is where, where no one takes that lead and that then everyone's kind of thinking that somebody else is responsible for it and or that it falls then to a parent. And so often, particularly for the um, autistic young people that I worked with who were school refusing and doing all kinds of other things, is that, you know, these poor parents who were then having to stop going to work and, you know, effectively take on the job of being their child's social worker or um, case coordinator because there isn't an agency that is willing to put their hand up and take the lead. That was kind of the whole point of the NGIS was around the Productivity Commission saying these people with disabilities are can be and should be productive members of our community and so should their carers and their carers should be able to work and be functioning members of our society. They shouldn't have to quit work in order to kind of navigate the service system. And so I think for me that's kind of, yeah, that kind of owning that up and I think probably we're still a little way from that in Tassie when we're looking at these young people with harmful sexual behaviours around that multi-system, whole-of-system approach about what is the multi-agency risk management and who's responsible for what. I think we've still got some work to do here in Tassie around, yes, 
what's the Department of Education doing? What's Child Safety doing? What's Laurel House and SAS doing? What are other people doing? I think we've still got some work to really bed that down. Yeah. I, um, I too really hope and I'm... It's really weird. Um, I remember I attended a roundtable with Dale a year ago, the Enzatsa roundtable, and I remember a few people in Queensland approaching me because we're in the middle of a commission of inquiry and everyone was like, oh, bad stuff happening in Tasmania, isn't it? Oh, lots of dodgy. And I was like, I'm actually really proud that we're having a commission of inquiry. And I think, you know, at least Tasmania is stepping up to the plate and doing that and looking at what has gone wrong and what we need to change to make it better. So actually, I'm actually really proud, you know, that Tassie's doing that. And I'm really hopeful that given the recommendations of the Commission and there's lots of things around not working in silos and that sort of thing, that hopefully that stuff becomes a bit clearer on, you know, which agency's doing what and that we're actually collaborating a bit better with each other as part of, you know, the change with the recommendations. So I'm really, I'm really hopeful that, that that happens. I think as far as HSB specific... That's one of the things we really need to focus on. And I know when I delivered some of the Daniel Morecambe webinars, I was really focused on context. When we are looking at these kids and what is happening for them, we really need to focus and be curious about their context because it's funny how as soon as someone sees a harmful sexual behaviour, that's the priority. Oh, my goodness, this kid's engaging in something sexual. That is the referral. That is what we need to focus on when a lot of the time that is not the primary issue for these children and it is much more complex than that. So I think that's really important too is that the, the more we get trained up in this area and the more that we can educate the people around us that they will take in context more and they won't, you know, be panicking every time it's a sexual behaviour because as we know sexual behaviours like all other behaviours are meeting a need and so that's what we need to do is ascertain what, what is the complexity here, what is going on for this child. I was just going to jump on the back of something Renee um, said as well, and there's a... I don't think it's happening here, but I think I was, I was wondering, to perceive this as being something that should be education-based that will solve the issue of harmful sexual behaviour, that's part of the issue for the whole population. The young people who've engaged in it, there's education usually, but there's a whole lot of other stuff, and the cohort my services see, by and large, have got complex trauma of a broad range and need time and space to understand that and the connection between that and their development and their sexual behaviours and the way they understand themselves in the world. So I talk about specialist services. For me, the specialist bundle is that, is that bit. I think the education programs that are being developed in schools are all looking promising. We've got a prevention program with a couple that we've funded in New South Wales that should be just openly available when they're finished, but one of them's uh, a version of uh, sex and ethics uh, that Maura Carmody and others developed, up to 14 to 17-year-olds who are at risk of harmful sexual behaviour. We're hoping that'll be ready to go early next year. So a range of things adding to the, adding to the ether. It's not a standalone, but it's, it's, it's a prevention activity. So there's education, trauma, and one of my pet issues at the moment, and I'll sit back and let others have it, um, a lot of the literature on harmful sexual behaviour is gender neutral. But it's predominantly behaviour by boys and men. And 10 to 20% of the girls, of our populations that we see are girls, we've done in-depth work with our girls. They're all 
they have, in our context, they have all experienced complex trauma. They have all experienced harm by men or boys, sometimes by women too, but by men and boys. This is a gender-based issue. And I, th I think the field has just not grasped that at the coalface strongly enough. It was there at the beginning. Um, in, when I say the beginning, I'm thinking 70s, 80s, when, the, when um, recognition of sexual harm was there. There's a really strong place for men and women in the harmful sexual behaviour response area. And, but there's really strong space where there's a need for women to be working and not men. And in my view, that's individual counselling with girls with harmful sexual behaviour. Girls have had extreme experience of harm from men. I'm not going to engage in having a male therapist set up an intimate one-to-one -one therapy thing with a girl. It's too risky. Might work, it's too risky. And, you know, we've got lots of great men in our network who can work with parents and be available and accessible to the girls who we see. So, in my mind, I think when we go into the next phase of service development, we're going to find out a lot more of these little lessons about how to set up safe and uh, really uh, strong ways to work with the young people. Well, can we please thank our panel today? Thank you very much, Professor Dale Tolliday, <laughs> Professor Elspeth McGuinness, Catherine Fordyce and Renee Pepper. Thank you so much. And that's the end of this episode of Keeping Kids Safe a Bright Futures podcast by the Daniel Morecambe Foundation. Make sure you go to the links in our show notes for resources and support. Remember, parents and carers, you've got this. You can subscribe to this podcast on your favourite podcast provider and give us a like on your socials. And if you found this helpful, please share far and wide and rate and review it too so more people can find us. Even if it's just telling a friend about this podcast, that's great. We want to empower as many parents and carers as possible each and every episode. You can support the work of the Daniel Morecambe Foundation by visiting our website and donating or call us for more information on 1300 326 435. Thank you for never forgetting, Daniel. You guys are very much part of the solution. Please complete the survey. Thank you for listening. Talk to you again next episode.